0: Hi, I'm Abby Mercado, an IVF mom, former VC investor and CEO of Rescripted. Welcome to The Future of Fertility, a podcast dedicated to shining a light on the entrepreneurs and innovators who are changing the face of family building. With billions in funding over the past few years, we'll introduce you to the people, the ideas and the businesses that are changing the fertility industry and in turn, millions of people's lives. The future of fertility is bright. Now let's get into it. Today, I'm here with Susie Devine, the founder and CEO of Bento. Bento is on a mission to help women everywhere get access to safe and effective over-the-counter products and educational content, alongside access to licensed healthcare professionals at an attainable price point. Bento has redefined women's journeys from period to menopause with the mission of disrupting the women's health market by using preventative medicine rather than turning to prescription drugs. Susie and the Rescripted team go way back, and we love working together. Susie is an authority on all things fertility, which is why I'm a proud Bento customer. This woman, let's just say she knows her stuff. I would love to welcome Susie to the podcast today. Welcome, Susie. So good oh, to see you.
1: You too, Abby. That was such a nice intro. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I feel so I feel so special. I'd love let's, to say let's that. just say I'm a fan. You're you and Kristen are the best. I'm really glad that you know we met Kristen when she was the fertility tribe. And I remember her talking about you and um, should she let you acquire her? And I'm just so glad that you two are now co-founders in what is today fertility rescripted, because yes. I think you two are such strong and powerful women in a space that needs our help now more than ever. So you're so sweet to say that.
0: Um, yeah, we, we love, how did it remind me, how did you and Kristen initially meet?
1: Instagram. Like,
0: yeah. Okay. That's how everybody <laughs> right? meets Kristen. I think.
1: And then, um, Yeah, then we just got connected and became friendly and started texting each other all the time. Yeah. Which is so nice. I feel like female founders really, like when you find your crew of female founders, you really need to lean on each other and support one another. Absolutely. You know, we
0: we can't do it without one another. There's so many things holding us back.
1: Absolutely. We just had the, I don't know if you follow Lauren Smith Brody. She is the fifth trimester. So if you're listening to this and you're in the fertility space, it's still kind of relevant because she is all about um, basically maternal health caregiver rights in the workplace. Mm. Um, And that counts as fertility too. But she took over our Bento Baby account yesterday. And she reminded me that as you know, as a founder, you know, you should pay yourself. You um, even if you are an expert in a field and remember that people should be paying for your services. Um, and I think that I myself as a founder, forget that. And I'm always there for my friends, but I'm like, hey, like don't forget to utilize our telehealth services or whatever it is. So mm-hmm. anyways, if you're a founder, and you're listening to this, which hopefully you are. Maybe that makes sense to you, yeah. but self-care I mean, for yourself. Yeah. yeah.
0: Self-care, like paying yourself a salary, maybe.
1: <laughs> maybe.
0: Totally. Yeah. I we to had an yourself. investor who told me that, a female investor. Um, hey, Audrey, um, who, you know, she's like, Abby, like pay yourself. Come on, like do this. Like you need to take care of yourself, your family, and you are working harder than a whole lot of other people. So do it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. I wish you know the first three, three and a half years of Bento I didn't pay myself and I put a lot of money in, mm-hmm. and it definitely messes with your confidence and you know your role in your partnership too. Mm-hmm. Like if you're with someone and like what are you bringing to the household income? So all of this stuff is really important for founders to consider yes. when you're starting out.
0: Yes. yes. Okay. So you said something that like immediately caught my attention. So you said the fifth trimester is fertility. And so a little bit of backdrop. So at Rescripted, everybody is always asking us, like, are you going to, like, where does Rescripted stop? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, where do you start and where do you stop? And for us as a business... Because our roots are like so ingrained in the infertility and pregnancy loss space, because Kristen and I have both experienced those things. We do not want to go anywhere near parenting. Um, And so when you, but at all things fertility, like that is us. So explain, explain, because you are the authority on all things fertility. Explain to me, like, how does that count as fertility? How is the fifth trimester fertility?
1: Yeah, so I think the fifth trimester movement really started around um, time, right benefits in the workplace. So what can employers do? What can companies do to support all of their employees who have caregiving needs, whether it is you are a parent um, or you have to care for an elder person in your family? And I would say and stretch it. And I think Lauren Smith Brody would say the same thing that that stretches to you um, if you are trying to become a parent. Um, You know, that counts as taking time off for uh, bereavement, uh, miscarriage, um, pregnancy, and infant loss, all of that counts. And when you're going through infertility, it's emotionally taxing, like the Mm -hmm. two years that. We were trying to have Pierce while also running a women's health and fertility business were the hardest years of my life. Um and I took after our second miscarriage, I took almost a full month off. Mm, um, good. where I fully stepped away where I was like, i like I need to treat myself as yeah. an employee taking leave, and like I need to take take a step back because ultimately that will be the best thing for my partnership with my co-founder, Kevin, and then for the company, because yeah. if you, you know, if you have a, a partnership that, that is like the most, most important thing. Um, yeah. And, yeah. but yeah, it
0: all, it all tie, ties in. Okay. So maybe I just needed a better understanding what the fifth trimester was. So thank you yeah, for I that. Mean, it's technically
1: like <laughs> yeah. going back to work after, after your baby, but it, that movement has expanded to, to so many other right. things in right. like the workplace and, and family. Well, that's wonderful.
0: Thanks for walking us through that. Well, so let's, and we've been, we've been chatting for a minute. So let's, uh, let's kind of like take it back to the very beginning. And would love to just hear about you, who you are, um, what your background is and, you know, would love to hear, would love to kind of you to end your spiel on a fun fact, um, about yourself that the listeners might not know.
1: Sure. So I'm a women's health nurse. I got started in women's health nursing right off the bat. So I went to UVA undergrad, did my nursing degree there. Wahoo! And I knew I wanted to be in women's health, and I got a job as a labor and delivery, postpartum, and antepartum, and well, baby and NICU nurse here at what was a um, very prominent urban hospital in Philadelphia called Hahnemann. It is no longer, sadly. It served a very urban poor patient population, and it was very needed. Um, and Philadelphia is a huge. Um, Center for Women's Health and Delivery Services. So we've now like gone down a whole unit, which is a whole diff- a whole other tangent. But mm-hmm. um that that all kind of ties into to what we're talking about um, with women's health and fertility care. So I served a, a really unique patient population and I loved it. It also got me thinking about preventative health and the idea that the modern US health system solely focuses on sick care. Now, this was back in like 20... I graduated, what, in 2011? So this is a while ago now. Um, And we were still here at Penn building inpatient hospitals, skyscrapers, and, and very focused on inpatient, where for me... Um, wellness and health, especially for women, like this isn't necessarily sick care when you're having a baby um, or trying to get pregnant. Uh, You're not necessarily like sick in the traditional sense. So, you know, how can we treat these people in advance, educate them about how their bodies work, all this stuff. Um, So that was always needling in the back of my mind. Um, I got into grad school here at Penn, like two years into my working inpatient, and I then decided to switch paths and focus on um, preconception care. So I started working as a fertility and IVF nurse with Penn Medicine here in Philadelphia. It's um, one of our big um, academic, um, you know, very (laughs) well-known fertility centers. And Oh, I loved it. I clearly, (laughs) um, I think I was meant to, for this, to all fall into place. And for a while, I wasn't sure, you know, as a nurse, it's really hard. I, I knew I wanted to do more and reach more people. Um, and as a nurse, you're sort of the bottom of the totem pole in the health hierarchy of providers or healthcare professionals. And, I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. Like, I don't want to prescribe people, but I'm really into health systems and the sort of like economy and the business of healthcare. And it was just working with my patients day in and day out that I finally got this idea back in like 2014, 2015 to start a company around helping these couples feel more empowered in their fertility journey. Um, so I got into a program at Wharton as part of my master's degree. Um, I was the only nurse, only female, um, but I, but I won, it ended in a pitch competition. I won, we got our first angel investors out of that and quit my job Mm -hmm. (laughs) like a week later, finished grad school, um, bought a house with, my boyfriend who then proposed to me a few months later. Yeah. There was a lot going on then. 2016, <laughs> 2017 was a crazy time for me. And I think that's just who I am as a person. So fun fact, like I just dive in head first. and sort of one of my um, sayings in life is you either sink or you swim. And I, I sure as hell I'm gonna figure out how to swim. Um, and that's oh, kind of yeah. is like when you are a bedside nurse, like you're thrown in it and you have to figure it out. Yeah. Um and and that's me. And I can talk more about them too. It'll so bit. what I mean, okay, so. I actually
0: want to go, like, thank you for that. I want to go a little bit farther back and I want to dig into something that I saw on your LinkedIn profile about yeah. Malawi, Malawi yes. and like kind of where it all started for you. Could you tell okay. me a little bit about that experience?
1: Sure. So, okay, before we started recording, Abby and I were actually talking about religion. <laughs> Fun fact. <laughs> um, and okay, so I was very involved in my church growing up, um, an Episcopal church, I taught in the Montessori preschool on Sunday school, and I was really involved in the youth group. And one of the groups at my church was called, um, worked with a nonprofit called Global AIDS Interfaith Alliance, which is actually run out of San Francisco. And um, I think she was tied to the, the couple that founded it. The woman was, I think at one point, the dean of Uh, University of San Francisco's nursing school. So like this, uh, that's how I got tied into this group. Um, So at age 16, my parents had to like sign over guardianship so that I could travel abroad with this group for three weeks. I think it was three weeks. Um, And we went all over. So we were working with orphanages, feeding centers, um, local churches, mosques. Um, so the point was that it was interfaith and there's a really big um, Muslim population in Malawi as well as Christian. And it completely opened my eyes to the fact that women are the backbones of communities, economically speaking. And it made me want to, that's what made me want to go into healthcare. And then obviously I chose nursing as my path, which which I think fits my personality. I'm definitely an empath. Um, not that doctors or other people can't be empaths, but I think nursing really was just the, the right path for me. But yeah, Malawi was unbelievable. I then went back again when I was in, um, in college at UVA and hopefully I can go go again soon. I'm like, how can I, I'm always wondering how can I get back there? Because I it's mean, so like you it changed you... my life.
0: You got malaria.
1: Yes, I did. What was that like? <laughs> it was luckily I was traveling with a few doctors, but it was funny. I was traveling with a neonatologist and an ER doctor. Mm. And they were like, Oh, we think you have a stomach bug. And it was our driver, Lusu. He was like, No, no, she has malaria. Like, we've got to get her to a clinic. Um, but we were on the road. So we had to stop. It was we were driving back from Southern Malawi to the capital city, the long way when I got sick. So I was too sick to travel. So we got me into um, a hotel and I stayed the night with the neonatologist, Susan. She took amazing care of me. And then the next day, Lusu took me to the long way to a clinic. And, you know, I'm so lucky that I got, had money, which allowed me access to care, which is, you know, like my whole... (laughs) Clearly, still part of my mission Mm -hmm. in life is access to care and preventative medicine, which
0: malaria can be completely prevented. Wow. Well, I bet your parents are freaking out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they are. They're like, I'm sorry, what is happening? Um, My mom always said she was in a Target and she got a call, and the guy was like, Oh, she has a touch of malaria. My mom was like, Oh, that's (laughs) like saying she's a touch pregnant. And I'm like, Well, actually, you can be a touch pregnant. (laughs) <laughs> Which, you know, as we all know with chemical pregnancies and
0: yeah.
1: miscarriage and the whole world of infertility, I would say that you can be technically yeah. a touch pregnant. Wow. No, that's a touch
0: of <laughs> malaria, man.
1: <laughs> but, but what a quote.
0: Um it, well that I mean it's now I kind of now I understand why you are the way that you are and why like you've become fascinated by just systems because you, Mm -hmm. you know, you realize you had money and you were able to find care and seek care for yourself, even though you had those doctors around you, it was, you know, it was something that like, like you needed to take it kind of a a step up and a step higher in terms of your care. So um, fascinating. Um, So uh, did you have, I mean, you, as a nurse and as an empath, you you took a path that I don't think I can name another nurse that that I know that has taken such an entrepreneurial path. Was there, like, did you have mentors in your life? Like other nurses who had been not particularly entrepreneurial?
1: Yeah, there are quite a few. Um, and some of them are UVA graduates. So a lot of nurses go on to be chief nursing office Officers of health systems and even CEOs. So, the CEO of the Children's Hospital here in Philadelphia is Madeline Bell, and she started out as a nurse um, many years ago at CHOP. So, I think, you know, a lot of nurses are like the kind of this type A personality and problem solvers. Not every nurse, but a lot of them. (laughs) love it. Love the cat. Sorry, we got interrupted by Kitty. <laughs> Sorry, I
0: cat my, my cat just jumped into I love the it. Zoom screen. <laughs> I have a cat
1: too, and I'm kind of shocked she's not on my lap right now as well. So I think there are plenty of nurses that are entrepreneurial, and I hope that You know, I could be someone to inspire another nurse to take a leap of faith and venture into the business world. There are a lot of problems that need to be solved, and there's a lot of red tape within health systems. And so it can be hard to find your role as a problem solver in that corporate setting. And I think that's where the entrepreneurial route was like way better, like fit me and my mission, who I am.
0: Okay. That, that makes sense. So it's like, maybe, maybe we all have a misconception. Um, so no nurses are amazing. And entrepreneurial nurses are also amazing. So let's, and also, so fun fact, I want to pinch pitch competition too. And that's Yay! how I originally right? started. Yeah, that was my founder story. Like pitch competitions are great as much as people, you know, make fun of them and, you know, all the yeah. things. It, it was it was a great thing for me. And obviously it was such a great thing for you.
1: Yeah, oh, look, if you are listening to this and you're a founder, I think it just gets to time, right? So like we only have so much time as a founder and time is like our most valuable asset, so in the beginning, it can be really valuable as you get like bigger, and your maybe pitch competitions aren't the best use of your time anymore, right? So like that's where I think you just have to think about it as use of time. And obviously, I had no idea what the heck I was doing. That's why I did this entrepreneurial program at Wharton, and it really helped me. And I met some of my, you know advisory board members, angel investors, and some of the best mentors I've I've ever had. So yeah, just think of using your network, using these as a as a stepping point to get in front of your audience um and get the get the message out there.
0: And it's a great way as you're kind of coming up with your idea and testing your idea and doing research, like it's a great way to get feedback. Um, So like, you know, kind of annoying when you're trying to raise money to do pitch competitions, but like when you're, when you're like, oh my gosh, should I quit my job and start this company? Like pitch competition, a pitch competition, at least for me, could not have been better. Like that was such, it was so timely. It was fantastic. And it, it enabled me to kind of take that leap. And it sounds like it did the same thing for you.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Okay. So let's dive into that. So bento, like whole <laughs> founding story. Sure. Um, You know, you've kind of walked us how you it, walked us through how you've gotten how you got there. Like, how? Okay. Like, what happened next?
1: <laughs> yeah. So bento first started out as this idea of a kind of like a fertility subscription box. So the point that as a nurse, you realize like everyone's body is different. Everyone has a different fertility diagnosis. We're all in different stages of trying. Our needs are different. And I wanted to kind of use that health data from customers and help them get the -the over-the-counter products that are going to benefit them. So is it ovulation predictor kits? Is it... Uh, pregnancy test kits do they need clean feminine care without the chemicals in it do they need um, the right fertility supplements and prenatal supplements so it was really kind of curating this marketplace of products which I know you guys have a marketplace yeah. now um, and and personalizing it for them so removing the guesswork of all this because that's what I was getting questions around all the time and um, so, yeah, that's how we started. And Binto stands for bun in the oven. Um, I had to come up with a name for the, the the class that I was in and stick with the business name the whole time. And um, I love Bento now because everyone's like, oh, I'm taking my Bintos. Like, it just, it all fits. And my husband, you know, I had a friend who was a graphic designer do the logo, but my husband helped too. So it's it was sort of like a seed that's sprouting, um, which is, you know, to me, fertility and growth. Um, and today we do, we have grown since then. It's been six years almost. Um, we have expanded for the full reproductive life cycle. So we early, we learned early on that no one six years ago was really talking about women's reproductive life cycle. I think we were the first company to use that term, reproductive life cycle. Now I see it everywhere. So I'm like, yes, like that's awesome. Where people are starting to talk about this as a life cycle because that's what it is. So, like supporting young girls or women from period years all the way past menopause. And, um, you know, fertility is a big component of that. It's still a core of of what we do. We have also formulated our whole line of over-the-counter supplements. We have some other products coming soon. And then we do telehealth services. So one of the earliest findings was that people, customers wanted to talk to me. They're like, oh, it's founded by a nurse. Okay. Well, I want to talk to you. I want to pick your brain. Um, and so We've sort of figured that out. We have other licensed providers. You can book consults with us. Um, and I think that access to care, especially for our customers who are primarily, I would say, not just the coast, but the middle of America, right? Where we have um, only 50% of the counties in the US have a single OBGYN. There's a huge dearth of healthcare providers for women's reproductive healthcare, and um, and now we're in a very scary time of post Roe v. Wade and, and what that means for a lot of the clients that we serve. So um, I feel like now we need companies like Rescripted and Pinto more than ever.
0: Yeah. So in terms of, you know, kind of this this initial box that you were going to provide, mm-hmm. like t- tell us a little bit about how you pivoted from that into what you're doing now and kind of, you know, some of the the early learnings that you had and how, you know, you were flexible and, you know, you kind of made a quick shift that enabled the company to still be alive today.
1: So my co-founder, Kevin says it best, is that we're not selling product for finding solutions for your symptoms. Um, and I think that's really, really key is that early on, we kept hearing the thing, like no one ever told me that mm. I didn't have to live with PMS. No one ever told me that I could use something to improve my egg quality. No one ever told me that 98% serotonin in my body is made in my gut and that I could take something over the counter to support that and improve my mood. So um, we pivoted quickly to um, the supplements because I think you can see a clear clinical outcome um, through data. So we are also a data company, which I don't talk a lot about, but we have our whole tech, tech, which Abby knows about. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. it's, so, the, it's so important. Problems. It's um, so important and it's so differentiating. It is.
1: Um, and then, so yeah, it was really like the technology and and focusing on products that actually improved clinical outcomes and made you feel better for those things that are a high value issue to you as a customer, but are there, they're lower value to a provider. So freeing up wait times... Um, for providers allowing people with like ovarian cancer to get an appointment, right? The wait times here to get an OBGYN appointment are minimum six weeks in Philadelphia. Um, it's it's insane. It's it's the same way in
0: Denver. Like I, I just got an IUD and even though my my husband and I are infertile anyway, I just wanted more, more, you know, like I wanted my periods to be less horrible. Yeah. So that's you're why allowed I did that. to use I know, an I know. IUD for that, Abby. Yes, it's okay. Thank you, <laughs> Susie. Thank you for letting me know that. <laughs> that's really good validation because I had like 10 minutes with my, with my OB-GYN and anyway, we didn't like talk a lot about it, but it's took right? like exactly two, two months. I was like, I want an IUD and it took me like two and a half months to actually get it in my body. Like it was crazy. Such,
1: it's awful. Yeah. It's really awful. So yeah, that's what we're focused on. Um, you know, like UTIs, yeast infections, period cramps, you want to talk about birth control options. Great. Schedule an appointment with us at Bento and, um, our physician associate, Andy can counsel you on the different forms that are going to be good for you. And then you're already aware of what you want to do and you can make that IUD appointment. Um, so you can, because you literally, like you said, only have about 10 minutes in the room with your provider anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, so we truly want to focus on products that deliver solutions. Um, and, you know, we quickly got away from a lot of the other products we were providing. I think we'll probably bring some of them back soon. Um, but under our our brand, our own products, um, and that's what we did with the supplements. You know, I felt like there was no one supplement company that was really focused on that that life cycle of women's health
0: yeah reproductive
1: that, health
0: adding those products makes a lot of sense to me because like in that sense you're kind of like you're vertically integrating um yeah you know it's like you become kind of this one stop shop for the reprodu- for care during the reproductive life cycle um, exactly. which just turns out quite long um it is. <laughs> so how, you know, supplement, like you were, you were kind of an OG, right? Like you started this company six years ago. We see mm-hmm. supplement brands all over the place. Like yeah. how, how hard is it to start to like formulate a supplement? Um, Like what, what differentiates you guys other than the fact that you're super personalized and you have this telehealth component that's clear, but like in terms of what's actually in the products,
1: tell us more so, about that. as far as, formulating it goes we sorry my golden retriever decided to interrupt the call (laughs) The, the cat we had the cat and the golden retriever okay so as far as supplements go and formulating it is really important to have the right team members and partnerships so supplements are um manufactured in labs that have to be certified by the FDA. So first, you want to find a really good manufacturing partner. And then you need people on your team like formulators. So you can have like a pharmacist, right, to figure out all the different components. And then we also wanted um, scientific advisors like physicians from different areas of women's health to help us with the formulation of our supplements. I think what most supplement companies do, and you may not realize this, is that everything, they just buy a la carte private label.
0: Yeah.
1: So I, I actually, actually
0: did yeah. know that. <laughs> <laughs> Fun fact about so, supplement brands. They're not yeah, all equal.
1: They are not. Um, and... A lot of these quote newer companies that pop up are really just like, oh, well, this is a quote an easy industry for me to get in. I'll just get a doctor and like put them on the front of our website and pretend like I'm formulating stuff. But really, they're just going to a private label lab, um, getting their prenatals and putting it in their own branded box, which isn't new. Like people do private label stuff all the time. Um, so what makes us unique is that it's our own formulations. We've spent a lot of time coming up with them. Um, and this is why we take our time. time right. is
0: money. And so time a lot is of money. money too.
1: <laughs> yeah. And we've taken our time with rolling out new products. We only have like 16 different SKUs. Um, so when it comes to the personalization, it's not like we're all over the place. Um, we have some general things that we pull from and then we titrate your doses or, you know, whatever you need for combinations. So also from a business model perspective in terms of personalization, um, you know, you don't want to have like 150 different supplement SKUs because that's going to be an inventory like disaster to try and keep up with all the time. So like there are things that I think we've done that are very smart for the business um, and also providing solutions to customers that act that make a difference in terms of like the formulations and the products that we do have. Okay. Um, but yeah, we, we really scaled through sales. Um, yes. so we are like that bootstrapped, um, story. We have some angel investors, one institutional, um, and we, You know slower growth um which has its pros and cons in terms of like other people getting in the waters but none of them are us um none of them have like a nurse susie um and that the team that we have and the formulations and everything that we've done and of course the technology so no one's really combining all of those which makes us i think the best
0: that and you gotta be
1: confident as an entrepreneur. No, I, I
0: love it. What so I'm definitely know, not confident all the time. You're amazing and you should be the most confident person in
1: the world. I have many but, days where I'm like, what the hell have I done? As I'm sure you have happy. <laughs> we all do. Everyone has
0: that. We all do. I love the authenticity. Um, so you kind of, you know, you you mentioned like you're bootstrapped. Like, I it sounds like you have you know, achieved some level of, of profitability through sales, like you've kind of been able to, you know, run this thing, like what's your, what's kind of your capital raising strategy going forward?
1: Yeah. I think for us, if we were to raise now, it's just would be like finding the right partner that's going to get us to the next level. Um, mm-hmm. it's not just about finding quick cash. Nice. Um, I'm, we're kind of past that phase in our business and and who we are. So we, you know, when we're thinking about it, it's going to be, you know, are we going to be acquired? Are we going to take, you know, a lead investor who's going to help us get to some other level with um, the the products that we're going to roll out? That that kind of partnership. Um, is more what we're looking for versus just cash, which is, I think like, you know, it's not easy. And I think that we don't talk about this enough in the startup community. And it really frustrates me. Um, I just did a program, Dream Ventures, which you told me, you sent it to me and I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do this. Um, And I really loved it. One thing that I feel like I'm still not seeing is that we put so much um, star or you know clout behind companies that raise all this money. Well, is that a good thing? Like, what about the companies that are profitable and scaling through sales? Like, as a founder, there are other ways to raise money and i think Mm -hmm. we don't talk about that enough in the media or as founders ourselves um because there are some people who are not who don't have the connections of the game that is raising capital which is like that network and who knows who and the warm intros and the everything for my iphone and and the game and um there are people who have brilliant ideas and you know when we think about diversity, right? Like a lot of those people that raise money are males, like we're females. Um, And then entrepreneurs of color, right? Like they're, they don't necessarily like have that access to raising that kind of venture funds that maybe other people do. So I really do wish that we talked about it. Of course, like investors aren't going to talk about that though, because they're like, well, that's our business (laughs) (laughs) is to to like invest in companies. Um, but like, look at Sarah Blakely of Spank. She's sort of like this insane unicorn. And like, there are there are ways to do it. I don't think everyone can do it. I think it's really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're listening to this and you're a founder and you're stressed out, like there are other ways to find money. If you And if you keep getting told no, but you have people buying your product and you're selling well, I mean, that's validating too. Like you don't need an investor to say yes to validate who you are and your, and your business. I
0: I am obsessed with this conversation topic, uh, as you know, like, yeah. I,
1: I know yeah. you are an investor turned entrepreneur.
0: I am. And you're totally right. Like we glorify these massive rounds and that is a thousand percent, not what we should always be glorifying. We should be glorifying brilliant founders who are, Building sustainable, profitable, revenue generating businesses. Yeah, that that is it. And that's what we're trying to do at Rescripted. So, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm like, we're running short on time and I'm like, oh my God, I have like 10,000
1: more things I want to <laughs> I know, I really you. talked a lot, sorry. No,
0: this is amazing and like, and so authentic. Um, I'm okay, here, I'm going to, I'm actually going to ask you to pick, pick the like last substantive oh, question. Sure. So, okay, I'm going to give you three choices. Um, okay. So I, my first question topic was going to be um, like, why? Why work with nurses versus doctors on your telehealth team? Um, second one is the role of data. Um, and then the third the third one is, you know, everything, every time I talk to you, you educate me. Um, so just wanted to kind of dive into the role of education in Bento. So anyway, three topics, pick one.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, I could kind of answer all three quickly. So well, let's do it then. Um, okay. So. Nurse over doctor, business-wise, because mid to lower level providers are more cost-effective yet can do a lot of the same things. We already talked about it. High value, customer problems, lower value to a provider like a doctor. So that's that one. Data. Why is data so critical in business and to what we do? Um, I mean, data is (laughs) everything. Mm-hmm. Is everything. So we have our own um, technology that we have built. Bento is a tech company and platform, um, and we collect a lot of patient reported and first party data, which is critical to. Um, how we operate as a business in terms of understanding what our customers need um, and getting you, getting them the right product and then measuring our outcomes. So super important business-wise and also for our customers. And then last one is the role of the educator and like how, why education is so important. I think as a nurse, I had the most amazing clinical instructor, Dr. Kathy Haw, Professor Haw, at UVA and we'd get to clinical um, and at the start of every clinical, she would always remind us that any person can do a skill, right? Anyone can learn a skill, but it's the nurse's job to teach. And no one can take that away from you as a nurse. And that is your role. And I think that has like stayed with me. Like that is what we do at Bento. So much of we, what we do is provide education to empower you, Um and I love, love educating. I, I did my minor, my master's degree in education, and I taught um, at Villanova's nursing school for a few years to make some side money <laughs> <laughs> when we got started. So yeah, I, I love teaching and education is so, so critical. Oh.
0: Amazing. I love it. Thanks for all three of those answers. Um, they all make sense and just resonate very much with me and most likely for the listener as well. Um, so my very last question, Susie, and we like to ask this to um, the guests that come on the Future of Fertility podcast. So as a as a founder and CEO in the fertility space, what is one thing that you want to rescript about this space?
1: Yeah. Okay, I think this goes back to the doctor versus nurse. Mm -hmm. Um, And this has been weighing on me recently in a lot of, I think Kristen shared, re-shared something really important on Rescripted's channel the other day. And that was talking about the privilege of being able to afford IVF. Mm -hmm. Um, And that also made me think about like, okay, why don't, yeah, why don't we talk about that? um and then why do we always talk about the doctor's role like the reproductive endocrinologist because your nursing team is the one doing so much of the work in an IVF clinic and we literally like we do not give these health professionals um enough credit when it comes to the infertility world i think another thing i'd love to rescript or you know when i think about the future of fertility is the immunology side and I'm so glad we're starting to talk about this and this is something like a lot of the new tests you know we, fertility has really lived in a box mm-hmm. for a long time with the since the conception of IVF and I think Binto is going to be on the forefront of some hopefully like additional amazing like testing that comes out and products that people will need in their home um, when it comes to the future of IVF. So immunology and like mm-hmm. the microbiome of the uterus and, and how that impacts implantation and, and all of these things really matter and, and our environment. Um, so the, those are the things when I think of, of the future of fertility.
0: Very detailed um both, both I know wow. I already like what all those are like it again. Very detailed answers that are that are uncommon from you know what we've heard today from our guests. So thank you for those those unique answers. Um well thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Susie. Tell our listeners where they can find you.
1: You can find us on Instagram at my M Y B-I-N-T-O, my bento, for all things women's health, wellness, fertility. You can also find me on TikTok at nurse underscore Susie, where I am really diving deep in the fertility content. And of course, please come sign up, subscribe, get your fertility supplements at mybento.com. Yay.
0: And I will say to plug Bento supplements, like I just feel so much better. Like my body Yay. just feels better thanks to Bento. So um I've never taken supplements in my life. And <laughs> I know, right? We got
1: you. We got you. And you got and me. Kristen. And now I'm
0: addicted. And Kristen, too, of course. And you know, I just I, I we all love working with with you, Susie. So um thank you again. And thank I you, know Abby. We will talk soon. Thank you for tuning in to The Future of Fertility. We hope you leave here feeling empowered about all of the exciting innovations taking place in the fertility space. If you liked today's episode and want to stay up to date on our podcast, don't forget to click subscribe. To find this episode, show notes, resources, and more, head to rescripted.com and be sure to join our free fertility support community
1: while you're there.